Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week I've been thinking a lot about empathy and who we choose to extend it to. The last few months have really tested the idea of empathy. The pandemic is a threat to everyone. It's the kind of shared experience that can help knit us together. And yet, that doesn't really appear to be happening. For the first few weeks, sure, there was a sense of togetherness, an idea that we needed to help each other through this. The ads we all watched in those early days of stay-at-home orders told us that. And the federal government provided assistance to businesses and people in distress. And policies were quickly crafted to help flatten the curve. But Americans appear to have moved on. Faced with the opportunity to go forward together, many of us have grown impatient and decided that the suffering of some is inevitable, so not worth the effort to fight it. There are even some Americans who don't believe that the suffering is even real. I can't think of a greater affront to the idea of empathy than that. The truly painful part of all this is the fact that the pandemic really isn't an equal threat to everyone. Some of us are at greater risk of exposure than others. Frontline workers, the low-wage laborers we deem essential, and people who, for one reason or another, are forced into situations that increase the risk of exposure to the virus. Among this last group are the people who are being held in our prisons. There is no greater challenge to the idea of empathy than the suffering of those who have been locked up for breaking the law and, in some cases, causing great suffering themselves. As it does with so many other things, the pandemic has brought the suffering of prisoners into high relief. There have been a number of outbreaks in American prisons, and our corrections departments have been ill-equipped to manage them. But there was a lot of suffering before the virus took hold. This week I'm speaking with Levi Polkinen, a Seattle reporter who just published an investigation into the prison healthcare system in Washington state. His reporting reveals a healthcare system that is overwhelmed, causing delays in care for everything from broken bones to cancer, and causing unnecessary pain and even death for some prisoners. Levi tells me what is at the root of all this suffering, why we should at least acknowledge that suffering, and whether our prisons are prepared for more COVID-19 outbreaks. Then, later in the show, I'll bring on Crosscut political reporter Melissa Santos to talk about a court case that could threaten the independence of journalists in Washington state. But before we get to the interviews, I've got a few programming notes here. So for the August 20th episode, I'm going to be interviewing Bakari Sellers, who at the age of 22 became the youngest African-American to be elected to Congress. He just published his memoir, My Vanishing Country. I'm about halfway through it right now, and it's really an incredible story. Then for the August 27th episode, I'll be joined by NBC News correspondent Jacob Soboroff who will be discussing his new book, Separated, which details the Trump administration's zero-tolerance immigration policy that has resulted in parents being separated from their children. I want to encourage all of you to pick up both of these books and read them before these interviews. And if you have questions for either of these authors, please send them to me at talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. I'm on now with Levi Polkinen. 
Levi is a Seattle journalist who has focused much of his work on criminal justice. His stories have appeared in The Guardian, U.S. News & World Report, High Country News, and The Seattle P.I., where he served as senior editor until 2018. Recently, Crosscut published his three-part investigative series on health care in Washington state prisons. His reporting uncovered a system where delays can be the difference between life and death for prisoners. Levi writes that mistreatment or a lack of treatment does not violate the Constitution's ban on cruel and unusual punishment unless the failures are intentional. Care that may constitute medical malpractice outside does not within a prison's walls. Poor medical care driven by neglect rather than intent is constitutional. Levi, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Thanks for having me, Mark. So um, I should note here first that I am not a disinterested party here. Um, I didn't edit this series with you, but I did green light it. So I uh, just want everybody to know that. But um, I want you to treat me like I don't know anything, which is kind of <laughs> the way you treat me anyway, right? <laughs> All right. Uh, so, you know, you've spent the last couple of years reporting this story, but I know that its origins go further back um, to the time that you spent covering courts for the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. Can you tell me how that earlier beat work led to this story? As a crime and breaking news reporter for the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, I would spend an awful lot of time down at court. Um, and what that meant usually it was watching this kind of parade of people come through, um, enter pleas or be sentenced. And so that got me interested in kind of seeing what happened next for these folks, because a lot of them, you know, you'd see these young guys who were heading off to prison for the first time and they, they would be terrified. Often you'd see these folks that were, you know, going for their second or third long sentence and they were just resigned and they just seemed heartbroken and hopeless and just having kind of accepted that this loss of freedom and loss of large chunks of their life was just how it was going to go for them. Um, yeah. So I wanted to figure out what, what happens when somebody goes away. So other journalists have written about this topic. What did you not see in that previous reporting that you wanted to explore with this series? So yeah, there's been a lot of very good reporting on um, specific instances in the prisons. But just in talking to prisoners over the years, talking to attorneys, families, what became clear is that we were seeing the exceptional cases, but that the norm was very close to the this kind of worst case scenario that coverage had focused on. And so I wanted to kind of look at the whole system, try to figure out what what a normal experience was for a prisoner, for an incarcerated person, I should say. And we're seeing all these signs of a system that's not working right. And focusing on this kind of bad apples narrative, it's valuable and it's useful to for the public to understand what these kind of exceptionally bad cases are, but it's worth understanding what the norm is too, and to see if, if we're really okay with a system that treats people the way ours seems to. All right. So let's, let's talk about what normal is here. As your reporting shows, you tell the story of a man named John Moses Washington. He had an accident and shattered his left eye socket. Um, what happened after John Moses shattered his left eye socket? 
So after John Moses broke his eye, as he describes it, his eye was uh, slowly kind of sliding back into his head. He was, you know, at risk of losing vision from that eye entirely. His face had been broken, basically. And for weeks and weeks, he asked for care. He want, needed to see a surgeon, needed to see a specialist. And it just dragged on. He wasn't getting the result he needed. Um, and by the time he did get help, the bones had knit incorrectly. He needed additional surgeries. They needed to graft bone and tissue from his leg to repair his eye, just to stop it from sliding farther and to preserve his vision. Hmm. If you or I, you know, had sustained an injury like that, we would be in a position to advocate for ourselves, to go to the doctor, to, you know, be like, you know, this this doesn't look right. I feel like, you know, something's going wrong here. Can you fix it? And hopefully the doctor is going to respond correctly. And if they don't, you could continue seeking care. But prisoners don't have that ability. You're basically writing notes to the prison staff, hoping they pass them to the medical staff, and then hoping you get the results you you need. And if you don't, you're just stuck. In John Moses's case, what finally tipped the scales in his favor was that he basically was threatening to sue. He started demanding his medical records and told the prison workers his attorney needed them to pursue legal action. And that's when he got transferred to a place where he could be taken to Harborview Medical Center in Seattle and checked out and get the surgeries he needed. Hmm. He had no, I mean, he had no agency or control over his own, his own medical care. John Moses was 17 hmm. when he was charged. All his adult life had been in prison. You can picture being in that situation and feeling your body fall apart and worry that you're going to have this lasting, debilitating injury that could be solved if somebody just stepped up and, you know, got you what you needed. Um, you write about another inmate, Michael Sublet. It is a, a, a striking story, I think. Yeah. So Michael, um, before his incarceration, he'd hurt himself in a motor vehicle accident. Um, he'd injured his back and once he was incarcerated, uh, he his back injury just started getting worse and worse. And that and that's something you you hear from a lot of incarcerated people is that they, you know, prison is hard. It's um, the model we follow in this country and in Washington State is that you know prisons are tough places. They're meant to punish people to whack them hard enough that they'll not commit other crimes when they're released. Um, and in his case, like the hard prison mattresses standing on hard surfaces all the time, his back started getting worse and worse. He ended up having back surgery while he was over at the, um, the prison in Walla Walla. It went terribly. So the doctor basically, uh, the surgeon went in and put a couple of long steel rods on his spine and screwed him into place and I think it was within six months, uh, most of the screws in his spine had failed. The rods were out of place. He was in just excruciating pain. One of the letters he sent me, he described screaming in his cell for hours yeah. and hours yeah. one night when the when the apparatus inside of him started coming apart. And he waited hours before anybody came to help him. 
since then, he's waited years to get the surgery that he needs to, you know, get him back on track. It's a situation where it's obvious that he is in pain, that this is what's causing his pain. He's now unable to walk. He's worried that he's going to be quadriplegic. And there's no debate about the need for care. He just hasn't received it. And I should say in his case that he was able to get the attention of the chief medical officer at the Department of Corrections. She's a person who's relatively new to that position and has kind of taken his case on as one to fix. Right now, he's working with a, a doctor who's trying to build up his strength so he can go and get surgery. And hopefully he gets a good outcome. And for him, a good outcome is going to be maintaining some kind of mobility. Mm -hmm. um, to his mind, had he gotten the treatment he needed, either a better surgery to begin with or the treatment he needed when it started failing, his prospects of being able to walk again would be much, much greater. But as it stands, he is looking at serving the rest of his sentence, which is a substantial amount of time, as at least a paraplegic, possibly a quadriplegic in the state prison system, which is not a situation you want to be in. Hmm. You spoke to uh, over a dozen different uh, individuals or families of individuals about their their cases. There were injuries, but then you, you spend a considerable amount of this uh, series actually talking about cancer treatments. What did you find can happen when you get cancer in prison? Uh, the short version is you don't want to get cancer in prison. Um, the, you don't want to get cancer at all, obviously, but, right. um, the correctional setting, you see delays in care. I mean, you see it in every state and you certainly see it in Washington state. And when you're talking about cancer care, delay can be deadly. It changes the, the trajectory of the disease, the, the longer you wait for detection, for treatment, it really is the difference between life and death. And so when you are an incarcerated person and you get cancer, your outcomes just are, you're much more likely to see a, a very poor outcome. There have been a number of deaths in Washington state system that are under investigation. There were two that I focused on two incarcerated people, uh, Kenneth Williams and James Thompson. Kenny Williams was just 60. And then uh, James was, uh, I think he was 57 when they had signs that cancer may have been growing in them. For both men, the diagnosis came pretty quickly, but then treatment just never came. They just never got chemotherapy or surgery to the degree that they needed to treat their diseases. Both of them had survivable cancers. Both of them died. So these stories are, are really disturbing, um, clearly. But I wonder if your goal here is to identify um, systemic issues, how do you go about establishing the sort of the larger argument that this is a systemic problem? Where do you move from anecdote, which you just told us a few really compelling anecdotes, into a systemic problem that um, that potentially um, there could be a systemic solution for? 
it's tricky in this on this topic because there isn't a degree of oversight that could point to where we know we're catching tracking everyone's medical trajectory. For these stories, what I was looking to was experts and academics who have reviewed prison systems across the country who have touched Washington system in some way or another. And what are they seeing in the prison system? So most people were really happy to hear from me, including to a degree the Department of Corrections. Nobody is saying that we're doing this right. The strongest statement that the Department of Corrections health lead could make really was that were she to receive medical care in prison, she wouldn't necessarily be terrified. The deputy secretary at Department of Corrections. My understanding of the Department of Corrections position is that they are doing the best they can with the resources they have, that they are meeting the standard that is set for them, which is this idea of medical care that doesn't equate to cruel and unusual punishment. Now, they have plenty of critics who say that they are not doing those things and that they could be providing better care even within the budgets that they have. In our state, the Department of Corrections has opposed outside oversight. Washington doesn't have um, systems like the state of Texas has an independent oversight body that looks at all deaths in custody, whether it be jail or state prison systems. We don't have anything remotely like that. The systems that exist to monitor bad outcomes in foster care or in the state psychiatric hospitals don't exist with regard to the Department of Corrections. The kind of police oversight efforts that we've seen in Seattle and King County and other places around the state, there's no equivalent when it comes to ways to review employee misconduct within the Department of Corrections. One of the attorneys I spoke with described it as a black box, and I was able to kind of open parts of that black box with public disclosure requests, talking to people. But the fact of the matter is, is Department of Corrections doesn't have to release very much information, and they they don't. So you write in here also about a, a legislative fix, actually. There's a bill that you that you write about. What is that bill and, and, and where is it at? Is this something that we could see enacted or is this a pipe dream? Yeah, so State Senator Darneal introduced a bill last session that would have created an independent oversight board that looked at in-custody deaths in state correctional institutions. And basically... The senator had, had done a lot of work around um, the Children's Administration and some other state agencies where they were having bad outcomes and needed more oversight. And she just was looking at DOC and not seeing those kind of structures. The idea is basically that spot places where smaller policy fixes could eliminate risk to people like creating a system where incarcerated people who are trying to access care and aren't getting the result they need can elevate their concerns more quickly or where medical staff within DOC, if they're seeing people that aren't getting the help they need, they can, you know, kind of send up a flare and get help right away. Like those are the kinds of changes that can keep folks from dying. And the senator's thought is that if the department has to show kind of show its work to the legislature, that it's going to be more inclined to make those changes. Hmm. The future of the bill 
I mean, like everything else right now, it's it, it's incredibly hard to tell. I, the The pandemic has just kind of made everything that's not absolutely front of mind just kind of fall off the fall off the agenda. Yeah. Um, that that said, Senator Darnell has been working on these issues for a really long time, and I would be surprised if she won't be bringing it back in some form sometime hmm. soon. So let's talk about the pandemic. Um, you know, clearly you've been working on the story long before uh, <laughs> COVID-19 was a thing. Obviously, the prison healthcare system is being stressed by this virus. So what has your reporting on the healthcare system shown you about how and whether our prison system is prepared for the virus? So... The big theme that came through in my reporting was delay. And what we've seen with the coronavirus response in our state prisons, evidence is some of that. Like testing has been slow to come. Uh, protective equipment, basic masks for prisoners is, you know, they, they have them in some places now, but it's it's all spotty. We haven't seen any particularly deadly clusters in the state yet, but there's no reason to think that that's going to hold. So infectious disease in prison, it, it's the thing that they worry the most about. They worry about tuberculosis spreading. They worry about hepatitis, flu, all these things. And they're reasonably good at containing them. Coronavirus is creating problems that are an order of magnitude greater than what the system is set up to face. Mm-hmm. And once it gets a foothold it's going to be very, very hard to contain it within an institution. One other thing to keep in mind with this, though, is that the way the Department of Corrections is trying to manage this disease is by dramatically reducing liberty for uh, incarcerated people. And perhaps that's what they have to do to hold off coronavirus they don't have better testing in prison than they do on the outside. So like the the same challenges that are facing all of us are facing the correctional uh, institutions. But it's worth recognizing that visitation has been curtailed, that the kind of events that make prison bearable for people, that help people create space within themselves to, you know, examine their past actions and grow those softer parts of prison are basically gone right now. At least what I'm hearing from prisoners and their advocates is that a lot more people are put in, being put into segregation, which is basically solitary. They're trying to move people around less. They're modified lockdowns in place throughout the system. And it's, it's making time a lot harder for people. It's also worth remembering that a lot of prisoners are in the absolute highest risk categories when it comes to COVID. They're older, they're sicker, and if they do contract the disease, there's every reason to think that the same delays that we've seen throughout the system are going to negatively impact their care. Um it's a risk to correctional workers too. Um, the solution that's been put forward by 
advocates, I mean, and, and frankly, it's the solution that they put forward, they would be putting forward anyway, is uh, decarceration to look right. at, you know, can we find a way to get these older prisoners out? Can we find a way to get people who are, you know, six months away from being able to be released? Can we move that, move them forward so they're not in this risky situation. After these stories ran, one of the emails I got from a family member of an incarcerated person, was she was looking for help um, because her cousin had had recently had a kidney removed as part of a cancer treatment. And she's just terrified that he's going to get, uh, get coronavirus inside and that he's not going to get help in time. And he's going to die. Hmm. And I, I think there are, there are, 18 or 19,000, depending on the day, people in prison in Washington state. And there are probably about that many families who are scared that their loved one's going to get sick and not get the help they need. Hmm. All right, Levi, I've got one, one last question for you here. You know, there are people out there who may think that prisoners are getting their just desserts here, right? It is a, a common idea that we shouldn't be spending a lot of money on prisoners, that, um, that this is a part of their punishment. What would you say to someone who feels that way? Why should we care about this story? My starting point on that is that it is entirely valid to, to believe that people who are in prison should be tortured and hurt. That has been what we've done to prisoners for a lot of human history. But we should be clear about what we're talking about. You can't both pretend that we're doing some kind of kindness and rehabilitative effort and allow people to be tortured, which is what these folks are describing. I mean, it's torture by inaction. It's, hmm. um, but even if you don't care at all about prisoners, if you, if you see mistreatment of prisoners as being some kind of justice, or if you just don't consider them to be part of your community, you just don't care about them. The fact is, most of these people are part, are going to return to our communities. 95% of incarcerated people end up getting out. And almost all of them end up drawing on public health insurance. If they are not being cared for properly inside of the prisons, they are not going to be able to secure a job when they get out. They're not going to be able to provide for their families. They're going to be people in pain. We're going to be putting broken people out into our communities. And that has follow-on effects for all of us, whether it's wanting to live in a community where people who have been punished learn their lesson and stop committing crimes, or whether we want people to be able to be productive members of society and not be limited by injuries they received inside of prison, whether we want to not have to carry the tax burden for people who, because of their incarceration, can no longer provide for themselves. There, there are a lot of different reasons why this is a public policy question that needs to be examined. And I mean, I have been in court with hundreds of people who have survived crime, who are seeing their the person that hurt them go to prison. To the degree that a person can, having not gone through that, I understand the desire for like vengeance and to, to kind of hit back against people who have hurt 
our community or ourselves. But we, we need to be honest about what we're doing. And all indications are that we are setting people up for pain while they're inside and for failure when they get out. And, you know, I don't know what a just system looks like, but I do know what the system we have looks like. And I wanted to share that knowledge with people. Hmm. All right. That's Levi Polkinen. You can read his series, Prison's Other Death Sentence, at crosscut.com. Levi, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this story with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mark. And thanks for all the support in making this. No problem. Hi, my name is Agatha Pacheco Flores, and I'm a staff writer on the Arts and Culture Desk here at Crosscut. So this pandemic and the protests are big news stories, but they're also big culture stories. In the past few months, we've been trying to get beyond the stats and the breaking news to explore how these events are changing the ways that we live and express ourselves, whether that's through socially distanced photography or politically charged graffiti. All of this reporting is free for you, but it does have very real costs. As a nonprofit news source, we count on support from our readers, viewers, and listeners like you to continue producing the stories and conversations that keep you informed and engaged with your community. If this work is valuable to you and you would like to support our journalism, go to crosscut.com slash donate. Okay, back to the show. I'm on now with Melissa Santos, our political reporter at Crosscut. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Mark. So you recently wrote about a case that has pretty big ramifications for newsrooms in Washington state, including our own. At the center of the case is a subpoena filed by the Seattle Police Department against a group of news outlets, which Crosscut is not one of these outlets. But the police are seeking to compel those outlets to hand over unpublished images from protests at the end of May. Uh, Melissa, to start, can you tell us why the city says it wants these images? Well, there were a few people who were committing uh, property crimes at that time during these protests on May 30th. So they want these images because they cannot find two um, firearms that were stolen from police vehicles during the protest on May 30th. So they want the media footage from a 90-minute period to try and help find those people and thereby those guns. And so there was a ruling on this uh, earlier this summer. The King County Superior Court said that the news outlets had to hand over these materials. What was the judge's reasoning here? Well, he essentially said uh, that the news media probably had really good footage uh, that would help the cops is what it's sort of when I just was looking over the order again, you know, the, the police said that they did a lot of other things to try and locate these suspects and the guns without using the news media footage. And the judge agreed that they tried some other stuff first and that it was highly probable that the media images did have pictures of the suspects. Uh, is what the judge said, because so, there were a couple photographs of uh, other people involved in these crimes that have been identified, that the media had, you know, a photo of here and there. So that was basically what he said. You know, everyone else's video was kind of crappy that the police reviewed, including security cam footage. You guys have really nice equipment and probably got some good shots. So um, this will probably help uh, find these people who did these crimes. And so that's what the judge said. 
uh, and, and said you have to comply with the subpoena. The judge later changed his ruling a little bit and said, "Okay, give it to me, give it to me, basically, and I'll look and see if it's relevant and then I'll hand the relevant stuff to the cops. But for the media, that's essentially the same problem. They don't want to do that. And so at the center of this conflict is something called a shield law. So this is something that, you know, we journalists know very well. But for the non-journalists listening, can you explain what a shield law is and why do some people feel it's necessary? Well, Shield laws can vary in in how far they go, but a shield law generally is the idea is to protect journalists from having to testify about their work and their reporting and having it used in criminal or civil cases. So often shield laws aim to protect journalists from having to reveal confidential sources, but they go further a lot of the time too, including in Washington, to protect against compelling testimony and you know, um, judges ordering media to turn over their unpublished work as well. But this more limited the protections for those materials. So that's kind of what the debate's about here is Washington has a shield law and it's been in effect for 13 years, but uh, does it protect these images and photos or not? And and that's not something that there's really been much of a ruling on before in this kind of circumstance. So these are protections that are not given to the average citizen. Why do journalists feel that they need these protections? Why is it important to the institution of journalism that these protections exist? Well, because the media outlets in this case, for instance, are saying if our work just becomes something that cops can just take, then people will not trust us. People won't come to us with information if they think we're going to turn around and and then just give it to um, law enforcement and that it could potentially get them in trouble. And this applies um, to confidential sources who, you know, come to the media and have an agreement that they'll remain anonymous, which is rare. Media doesn't usually do that, but sometimes they do. And it also, though, applies the media uh, folks are saying to their reporters will not have the trust of the public if they're viewed as an extension of the police rather than independent observers. And that's essentially the crux of this debate. So Washington passed the shield law in 2007, right? You write about this in in your story. Uh, And you write that this case 13 years later is the first major test of the law. And I'm wondering, you know, the the people that you spoke to about this case, how how do they feel like the shield law is faring in this um, in this test? Well, several of the media law lawyers who work on these cases often were just shocked by this. Um, two of them, I, sh- I should say, I talked to were pretty shocked by it because they said that every time they've had an issue like this even possibly come up, it's never had to go this far. They've just basically called up the police or maybe a defense attorney or some attorney who was asking for these materials and read them the shield law that Washington has, and they just backed down. So it never got this far before. Hmm. And that hmm. people who support the law think it's just not being followed in this case, essentially. And I, that's the stance of the media outlets and some other people who aren't involved in the case, but that watch these issues closely said to me is that they think that the law just is being misapplied by this judge. Clearly, the judge disagrees. Clearly, the police disagree. Uh, So that's going to have to potentially be decided by a higher court uh, since we don't have case law deciding this so far. Right. This this will become case law. 
Yeah, the the media companies have said they're going to appeal. So that means it'll go to a, an appeals court or the state Supreme Court. And then this will be what decides how this law works going forward. If this if this isn't a case where journalists should be compelled to hand over possible evidence, what do these news outlets say would meet that threshold set by the law? You know, mostly what they talk about a lot in their court filings is there were tons of people at this protest. It wasn't like it was a situation where a media person was the only witness to things that were happening downtown. There were thousands of people, I, th- I think. I wasn't there that night, but... So they, so they say, really? Did you not look at social media video? Did you not go to members of the public and say, hey, y'all, we're holding up your phones on this protest. What did you, what did you got? We were looking for these people. They, they, so they were, um, the, the media says that the, the cops did not try to actually go find other places to get um, these materials. And that's a requirement of the S.H.I.E.L.D. law, actually. It mm-hmm. says mm-hmm. that they have to go exhaust all reasonable and available means before having a subpoena. So the media doesn't think they did that. So that's a key point. Um, one lawyer I talked to said that, you know, if it, there was a shooting and there was only a journalist there and the person who did it, that might be a situation. You know, if it was like a murder or a serious crime against a person. In this case... There's some question among some of the people who are, agree with the media here about whether property crime and theft really meets that standard. You said that, that of course, there's the potential that this becomes case law that then dictates really how this law is interpreted in the future. I wonder, um, is there a chance that the outcome of this case could result in an update to the law? Could we possibly see a legislative fix here if uh, things don't go the way that the media representatives think it will or think it should? I think that you probably will see at least proposals to update the shield law uh, once this appeal is decided one way or the other. There's already one lawmaker who was tweeting that immediately we need to update our shield law. When I uh, got back in touch with her, that's state Senator Karen Kaiser, who used to be a TV journalist. So I think she's sympathetic mm-hmm. to this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um when I got back in touch with her, she said, well, let's wait to see what happens with the appeal. But it sounds like there's some skepticism about whether it's appropriate to have journalists turn over unpublished materials, even if they weren't, you know, collected with confidentiality as a promise. So I think you will see proposals to update the law if the, the media outlets lose their um, appeal here. All right. Well, thanks so much, Melissa, for coming on and walking us through this issue You can read Melissa's story at crosscut.com. You can also read all of her upcoming election coverage for the next few months. So, Melissa, thanks so much. We'll have you on again soon. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Melissa and Levi Polkinen for joining me. This episode was engineered by Resty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.